0: You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Well, good morning. Uh, As Jim said, uh, our ladies uh, here at Red Sea are away at a women's retreat, so we are not a church of single deads, although it may look like that. Uh, we are uh, lucky to be able to send many of the ladies away this morning to be able to be down in Lincoln City together, and they got some beautiful sunshine, and they're at a beautiful beach house called the Dawn Treader, uh, spending time even right now as we are in a prayer together and a time of worship, so I'm excited to hear about uh, just a time of rejuvenation for them, you know, to be able to get away in the midst of the craziness of life uh, is just a, a good thing to do, to to rest and to be be together. So excited for them. So, on uh, September 13th, uh, 1814, uh, the British warship sent rockets and shells onto Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor, uh, relentlessly pounding the fort for 25 hours. Uh, The bombardment is known as the Battle of Baltimore, uh, and it came only weeks after the British had attacked Washington, D.C. They had burned down the Capitol, Uh, they had burned the Treasury, and the President's House, And it was another ongoing story in the War of 1812. Well, a week earlier, a lawyer named Francis Scott Key, 35 years old, he had boarded the flagship of the British fleet on the Chesapeake Bay in hopes of persuading the British to release a friend of his who had been arrested. So Key's tactics were successful, but because he and his companions had gained knowledge of the impending attack upon the fort, The British did not let them go. They allowed them to go back to their ship, but they were guarded. And under the scrutiny of the British, Key watched on September 13th as the barrage of Fort McHenry began eight miles away. It seemed as though Mother Earth had opened and was vomiting shot and shell in a sheet of fire and brimstone, Key wrote later. But when darkness arrived, Key saw only red erupting in the night sky, Well, given the scale of the attack, he was certain the British would win. The hours slowly passed by, and in the clearing smoke of dawn's early light on September 14th, he saw the American flag, this flag. It was not the, the British Union Jack that was flying over the fort, but it announced that America had won the victory. While key, he put his thoughts down on paper while still aboard the British ship setting his words to a tune of a popular English song. His brother-in-law was the commander of the militia at Fort McHenry. He read Key's work and had it distributed under the name The Defense of Fort McHenry. Today, the poem has a different name. Does anyone know the name of the poem? The Star-Spangled Banner. Good job. After that, the Baltimore Patriot newspaper printed the words, which we now call the Star Spangled Banner, and it appeared in print across the country, immortalizing his words and forever naming the flag that it celebrated. You can actually still go to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and see uh, the actual flag that was raised that morning over the fort. It was 35 feet long when it was originally raised, and over the years, it was used kind of as the family that owned it gave away pieces of it so you'll notice little corners are cut out of the flag. This is all that's really left of the original that they have on display. There's pieces of it that are spread all over the U.S. Now, since that date, the American flag became kind of the symbol of our unity as a country. Now, many of us, to be honest, don't probably think about the American flag a whole lot. I mean, you probably grew up in school saying the pledge to the flag every morning, but it's been a while for many of us since we've done that. Uh, I would imagine that many of you probably sing the Star-Spangled Banner at sporting events, especially at basketball and baseball and football. But the true power of the flag, I know our flag in America, tends to really come up when we're under some type of opposition, some type of force, I think back on September 11th we were uh, attacked. Uh, At the time, I was a good old redneck in South Alabama, uh, and I flew a 12-foot American flag behind my pickup truck for two weeks after September 11th. That was this, this, this symbol for the first time in my life that I felt like I was actually a part of something. Unfortunately, war does that to us many times. It brings us together for a common, unifying purpose. Well, in our text today the nation of Israel is going to come under attack for the first time from outside opposition, where they are going to have to fight back. Up until this point in their wandering in the wilderness, they've faced opposition, but it's mainly come from within. There's been bitterness, there's been grumbling, there's been doubt. But now, as they face another attack by an impending army, who will they turn to? What will be their symbol? Where will they look to find their help? What, what flag will they raise to unify them to God's purposes? What will their banner be? Let's take a look at it here. It's going to be in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. I'll invite you guys, if you have your Bible, to turn or swipe to Exodus 17, 8 through 16. I also invite you guys just to stand up one more time before you get too comfortable. We're going to read God's word together. And then I'm just going to say a brief prayer afterwards. Okay, Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Uh, Father, once again, just briefly want to come before you and say Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and to hear from you of a story that happened so many thousands of years ago, uh, but uh, applied to your people then and still applies to your people today. I just pray we would learn all that you would have for us in these amazing truths of you and the way that you deliver your people and the way that you are delivering us. We ask this in your name. Amen. You guys have a seat. So we are journeying through the book of Exodus together as a church. For those of you who are visiting, we're calling the series The Deliverer because God's the main character of Exodus. And we're learning a lot about what it looks like to journey with God and have trust and faith in Him. But one of the interesting things about reading the book of Exodus is you don't always get the backstory. You know, the, the, the biblical authors don't always tell you a whole lot about the motivation of the characters, why they're thinking and doing certain things. Sometimes they do, like when we were going through the plagues. The authors spent a lot of time talking about Pharaoh's motivations and Pharaoh's hearts and his thoughts, but we don't get that here in this text. So we've got to look outside of this story a little bit and and try to put together a bigger picture of what's going on right now. For example, we don't know a whole lot about the Amalekites, right? This This is the first time they're introduced as a nation. But when we look back in the book of Genesis, then we can see quite a bit about them. We know that they trace their lineage back to Esau. Remember Jacob had, I mean, uh, Joseph had, uh, Abraham had two sons, Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac, Ishmael, Isaac had two sons, Jacob, Esau, there we go. Uh, And so you have these two sons, and and remember when God made a promise to Jacob that he was going to make this great nation out of him? He also made the same promise to Esau, didn't he? But at that time, he told Esau that the great nation that's going to come from you is going to be at war with the great nation that's going to come from Jacob. So we have Israel coming out of the line of Jacob. Well, who do we have coming out of the line of Esau? Amalek. He's one of Esau's sons. Now in the text, we see a nation that's been formed out out of Amalek called the Amalekites, and God had promised there was going to be enmity between those two nations, and we see it for the first time here in the text. Well... Why did they choose to attack? Well, I don't know. I mean, if two million people were marching through your backyard, you may choose to stand up to them. There's scarcity of resources. So maybe they decide to say, you know, I don't want you guys wandering through our area. I don't want you consuming our resources. Uh, Maybe they saw the uh, Israelites as easy prey. You know, they are uh, a, 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 a landless people. They are wandering in the wilderness. They've just plundered the Egyptians, which I'm sure made headline news at that time. So they know they're wealthy. They know they've got money. They know they're wandering through the wilderness. No one's actually fought them yet in a battle like this. So why not try it out? But here's the thing that we can be sure of. The main reason that Israel, that the Amalekites decide to attack Israel is because Satan wanted to use them to try to destroy God's people. This is a truth that remains as true today as it was back then. Behind all evil and opposition is a great being that we believe is called Satan. It's the devil. He's fighting against God and against his ways. He uses all types of creativity to do this for thousands of years, and he is not tired of it. So the people of God must always be prepared to fight against oppression, against injustice, and against any type of evil that occurs personally to you, but also corporately to us and even to God's creation throughout the world. This is why God's church, His people, have a divine right to challenge any type of oppression and injustice. From human trafficking to abolition of slavery and inequality, to raising up uh, education in third world countries, to us feeding the homeless and picking up hypodermic needles like we're going to do next week. This is not us just going out and serving the community. This is us fighting physically against evil that is in our society, against brokenness and human depravity. And we go not with a bat, but we go with love and gloves next week. And trash bags because we're fighting. Now, there are times when God does all of the fighting. Uh, take the text that we looked through with the Red Sea, right? The, Israel, the, the people's response to the approaching army, to Pharaoh's army, was stand firm, do not fear, be silent, right? And God came in and he did all of the work. He parted the Red Sea, he destroyed the army. But that's not always how God works. Now God's people are joining with him in this battle. Remember the armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians is comprised of both defensive and offensive weapons. I remember when Chris taught us through this back a little while back. We need to take both of those tools, all of those tools, both offensive and defensive weapons, to learn how to fight. And I believe This is one of the main things of what we're able to learn today in this text in Exodus. What does it look like to fight? How do we fight with God and in the power of God? And I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what that looks like, what type of oppression, attack that you are having to face, that you are having to fight. But let's lean into the text here as a model for a way to do it. One of the things that we must never do when we're facing opposition, when God's people are facing oppression, the thing that we must never do is nothing. Royce sent me and Chris a a chapter out of a book this week called Revitalize by Andrew Davis. And in it, he says, one of Satan's greatest weapons against God's people is discouragement. Put a quote from the chapter up here on the screen. He says, This he says, Satan will lie to us sufficiently before the battle, so that, completely demoralized, we never even get dressed for the battle or pick up a single weapon. If he can achieve this, he will stand unchallenged in the field while our powerful and skillfully wrought arsenal lies unused on the ground. That was powerful for me this week. I wonder how many times we just choose not to fight. We just get discouraged and we choose not to do anything. This is a call to God's people to take up arms. Well, Moses and the people of Israel, they're they're emboldened. I think it's because they just saw this victory over the Egyptians and they choose to fight. Offensively, the weapon of choice is the man Joshua, right? We know in the text that Joshua is going to go on to be a a great warrior for the nation of Israel, leading them to many successful battles in the promised land. But Moses doesn't choose just to fight defensively. He also chooses, offensively, he also chooses to fight defensively. He's got a really interesting plan here. Moses tells Joshua, gather the troops, go down and fight the Amalekites. While I'm, Moses says, I'm going to go up on a mountain and I'm going to (laughs) pray. I have to wonder how Joshua felt about this arrangement. Joshua felt about this arrangement, right? So so I'm going to go fight and you're going to go stand up on the mountain and watch and pray. But he does it. He steps out in obedience. Moses demonstrates for us, I think, an important truth when we think about fighting oppression, when we think about fighting Satan, we need more than physical strength. We also need spiritual strength to win a battle. Well, as the story goes, it's a familiar story, right? Moses, Aaron, and Hur go up on the mountain. Joshua leads the people in the battle down in the valley. Moses raises his hand up with the staff, the sign of God's power that God had given him at Mount Sinai, and says something to God. He's praising God. Is The idea we get from the text, he's praising in some form. He says, uh, a a throne upon the hand of God. A hand upon the throne of God, right? So it's some form of adoration, praise to God. But I'm not sure if Moses knew exactly how God was going to work, because what obviously happens after a while when you're holding a staff up in the air? Begin to get tired. And he noticed that as he lowered the staff, he could see Amalek start to win the battle. And as he raised the staff, he noticed that Israel started to win the battle. Well, luckily he had Aaron and Hur there with him. And so Aaron holds one arm, Hur holds the other arm. They put a rock underneath Moses and he sits down. And it says that the battle goes into the evening. And Israel overtakes Amalek. See, in our, in our battles that we fight, we have to take up the whole armor of God. We have to choose, for one thing, to even fight in the first place, like Joshua, believing that there is something that God wants to do. But at the exact same time, we hold our hands up to God's throne and we say, This is out of my control. God's people must constantly find that balance between charging forward the battle and getting on our knees before the throne of grace and saying, help me, God, because the Christian life is both of these things. See, we as a church have been in a season of calling out to God for help. We've been meeting up here corporately on Sunday nights. We've been asking for God's Spirit to move powerfully. We've been holding up the staff and saying, God, we believe that you want to do a powerful work here in this community. We would want your Spirit to come revitalize the hearts of your people. The next opportunity you guys have to do this is April 7th. It's in two weeks up here on a Sunday night. If you haven't made it yet, you're missing out on an amazing time together with the Lord. But at the same time, we are fighting. And I've been so encouraged just over the last couple of months as we've been asking God's Spirit to move powerfully. You know how He's beginning to move? You know how I'm seeing it? He's stirring the hearts of His people to the mission that He's called them to. It's been amazing to see men and women who are stepping up to fight. And they're taking the fight to the streets. I see God's people emboldened to reach out to teenagers like Brandon is doing. I see others who have stepped up, who have a heart for God's Word and want to teach it. There's others in this church who have, who have come and have opportunities to serve in the community and want to lead in that. God is bringing others who want to lead us into cultural engagement in this community. Your elders are fighting every single week, in a good way, In our elders meetings, we are having harder conversations than we have ever had in our time together. It's great. I love watching these guys fight because we have a common purpose that we're fighting for. The glory of God. What it means to be the church in St. John's and in Portland. So as we move forward, we're going to do three things. We're going to pray constantly Without ceasing, your leaders have been doing it here on Sunday mornings before the church starts. We have home communities that are doing it. We're doing it corporately on Sunday nights. We're going before the throne of God and saying, help me, God. We're also fighting. We are not growing weary. We are pressing on. And the third thing that this text teaches us to do is to just thank God for the journey. Thank God for his provision. Look at it here in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation first thing Moses does to thank God is he builds an altar. Now typically altars many times were built as a sacrifice, some form of atonement, but this is an altar of thanksgiving. By grace, by God's grace, Israel had won the battle and the only proper way is to give pray of responding to that is to give praise back to God. The Israelites had worshipped God for their salvation at the Red Sea and now once again they're going to worship Him. For even a small victory like this. They worship for the victory of their salvation. And now, along the wilderness road, they're going to worship God for Him sending a victory. See, we too as God's people should praise Him for salvation through Christ. But we also have to constantly celebrate the victory. The perpetual struggle against sin and temptation and the provisions of God upon us. See, this is one of the purposes of corporate worship, adoration, thanksgiving. This is why God told his people he wanted them to gather weekly to just remember, to remember how good God is. We're going to be talking a lot about this. Our next series is going to be the Ten Commandments that we're going to go through. After this series takes us up to Exodus 19, we're going to do a series on the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments that God gives is to honor the Sabbath to keep it holy. And so we're going to talk about what's it look like to worship, but then also to rest and to remind ourselves to not perform, but to just sit back and receive the goodness of God. So what Moses does. He worships. He's thankful. We gather weekly in church to do this. That's why we sing. I know singing is weird probably when you think about there's not a whole lot of places outside of church that you get together with a group of people to sing unless you're in a concert. But singing is an important part of God's people reminding their own hearts of what God is doing and placing God in His proper place in the midst of the hecticness of life. If you know you're loved by the King, you sing, 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 Right? That's why we do this. The other thing that Moses does, aside from building an altar, is he writes a scroll of remembrance. Well, eventually this becomes an edition of the book of Exodus. He, he wrote some type of memorial inscription. It's a, a record of God's victory in battle. Now, this is important for two reasons. One, it's because Israel, they're going to have to fight this fight again with the exact same people. And when they do, they need to remember that these people were their enemies, and they're the enemy of God, and God had promised to destroy them. Do you know why? you know why they need to be reminded of that? Because the next time they fight Amalek, they fail. And once again, I wonder how many of us have failed in the fight, and then we've given up. Is that not what God's word is for? It's to to remind us to continue to press on, to not give up, to not be overcome. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. See, the Israelites in just two years, they're going to reach the promised land. I mean, two years later, they're going to reach the border of the promised land. They're going to encounter the Amalekites again. And instead of praying for victory, they're going to be afraid. And because of their fear, They're going to spend the next 38 years wandering in the wilderness. Then Israel's going to have another opportunity to fight them. It's going to come under the reign of King Saul, who's who's been told by God to completely destroy the Amalekites. But what is King Saul going to do? He's going to spare the life of their king, being disobedient. It won't be until Samuel and later King David that the job is finally finished. There's another reason, a more important reason why God had Moses record Israel's victory over the Amalekites. It's because he wanted his people to remember what he had done for them. So that whenever they came under attack, they would be thankful and they would look to him for salvation. Israel, this is the first of many, many battles that they are going to have to fight. And so God, knowing how prone they are to forget, has Moses write it down to just remind themselves that they're going to go out and fight. They may lose, they may win, but God receives all the glory. God's in the midst of the fight. You know the, the three things that kind of jumped out to me in this text? were three of our pathways? Moses demonstrate, demonstrates Scripture, prayer, and worship. All three are defensive weapons. They protect our own hearts against discouragement, and when we neglect these, we might as well go into a battle naked. I I I'm just amazed how many times God's people, as I'm talking, we're talking about life, we're talking about the struggle, we're talking about the fight to survive against opposition. I'm like, hey man, what's God telling you in His Word? Well, you know, I'm not really reading God's word right now. Well, what about prayer? What about time with God? What's, what's He saying during those times? Well, you know, you know I really I haven't had time to do that. There's just too many Netflix series. And what, about, what about worship? What about regularly gathering and, and corporately with God's people so that we can all praise together, and we can all hear the story recited again and again? Well, you know, the weather's just really nice right now. And, and brunch happens in Portland right during this 10 o'clock window. You know? It's crazy. It's like fighting naked. It really is. Or it's like not fighting at all. Let's be honest. It's just not fighting. It's just, it's, it's moving from being a part of God's army to being a spectator, watching and wondering why it feels like you're losing. Let's fight. The Lord is my banner. This is how Moses summarizes what Israel learned with their fight with the Amalek. With Amalek, In the Hebrew, uh, this phrase, the Lord is my, my banner, it reads Jehovah Nisi. It's it's the second name of God that we've been given. I am Yahweh at the burning bush. Now we have another name of God. The Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi, or Jehovah Nisi. A banner, it's a military standard, right? It's a piece of cloth. It it bears an army insignia. You raise it up on a flag. It's like that flag over Fort McHenry. What's the purpose of the banner? Why would you do that? Because the soldiers need to be able to look to the banner. They need to be able to remember what they're fighting for. It establishes identity. It helps them know who they are. On the battlefield, it helps you know your direction, where you're going. But it also tells you who's winning and who's losing. I like to think that the Israelites actually use this. You know, they're fighting against Amalekites and they start to get overwhelmed. And what do they do? They look up to the mountain and you got Moses up there with the sign of God's power where God had promised this covenant people that they would be victorious. And they look to the banner and they're like, they would charge back the Amalekites and they would win. We've got to look to the banner. Our military standard the Lord is our banner. Hmm. That's something we just don't do enough. We just don't look to the banner enough. I think we need it, though. I think we're all looking for something to give us security, we're looking for something to give us an identity. Think about in your own life what's your banner? You know, what, what's this thing that you turn to? What's your emblem of hope? Where do you look for courage in difficult times and despair? Where do you find victory? Is it, is it your job? Is it, is it your kids? Your spouse? Is it success? Is it money? You want to know what your God is? It's what you turn to to look for help in times of trouble. So where do you turn? Do you turn to the Lord? Is He your banner? So what's our banner today? It's not Moses holding a staff, is it? It's Jesus. Now the Bible doesn't say that Jesus has a banner. It's not that weird Christian flag that has a cross on it or the dove with the branch in his mouth. Jesus is our banner. It's by looking to him that we are saved, specifically by looking to the the cross. That's why they're at the communion tables. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was lifted up on a pole, he was the banner, he was the evidence that there will be victory. Now, what do we do? We constantly look to the crucified Christ as our banner to continue to press on. Our risen Savior. Our banner is the cross where He bled and He died for our sins. And when we come under attack, Christ, through the cross, gives us the courage to continue to fight. Church, Please, don't give up on the fight. And let's fight the way that God called us to. On our knees with a sword. That's how we're going to press forward. So communion, these tables, it's, it's just another altar, right? But this time, it's an altar of remembrance. It's not an altar of atonement. Jesus did that for us. It's an altar like what Moses built. It's just these visual reminders of this amazing work of redemption that God has done. And as we come and we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, it becomes the banner, right? It becomes the symbol of the fight. It reminds us that the final victory has already been accomplished. We know how the story ends. Praise God. We know who reigns victorious. We know ultimately that Satan will be defeated. He's already been dethroned. Death no longer has a hold on God's people. How will we live if we actually believe that? If we actually believe that the victory, the battle has already been won, it just gives us an eternal perspective, doesn't it? that says we can overcome anything that may happen in life, any opposition, wherever it comes from, we will reign victoriously. So I want to invite you guys to come. Let's sing to Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our banner. Let's worship. Let's come to the table. And let's fight. Join me in prayer. God, I thank you so much for your word. It's been an encouragement to me this week. In a time of discouragement, to just continue to press on. God, I'll be honest, at times it feels like Amalek is winning. It feels like Satan's winning. But I know those are just lies that are being whispered in my ears by the evil one. Your people will always be victorious. And so we come to you right now, and once again, we we offer up a praise to you of asking for help. We look to Jehovah Nissi. You are our banner. You are the thing that we turn to for purpose and for meaning. These songs that we're about to sing, Father, are are a response to You for the, the good generosity that You have displayed in our life. Fill us with Your Spirit now. Just remind our hearts as You send us out as Your people back into the battle that we would not grow weary and we would not faint. But we would press on we'd finish well. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org